Hello, and welcome to the first Full Brexit uh, election podcast. So for those of you who aren't familiar, the Full Brexit is a network of uh, scholars, activists, journalists committed to um, seizing the opportunities for popular sovereignty and democratic renewal uh, in Brexit. So the Full Brexit is, is, is a network, as I said, and so this is not the party line at all. It's just my opinion. So I'm George Hall and the opinions as well of Lee Jones. So hi, Lee. Thanks for joining me today. Hello, George. Hi. Um, great. So let's, uh, without further ado, get started. So we're obviously going to be talking about the uh, general election today. Um, so first, first things first, um, what's this election really about? Uh, do we think it's uh, the Daily Mail's got it right? Is it the Brexmouth election? Well, I think that fundamentally, you know, from an objective viewpoint, it is um, a Brexit election. But it's obviously being framed in ways that are not to do with Brexit, um, mm. particularly by the Labour Party that wants to talk about everything apart from <coughs> Brexit. That's its strategy, um, to talk about uh, climate change and green industrial revolution and everything else and have Brexit as a, as a, as a footnote, really. Mm. Um, but the truth is that the outcome of this election will determine the future trajectory of this country in a way that probably no post-war election ever has. The question is, are we going to see a majority Conservative government that mm-hmm. will push through Boris Johnson's Brexit deal and therefore take Britain out of the EU? Or are we going to have um, a hung parliament, possibly um, a minority Labour government um, and a Remain alliance in parliament that will hold a second referendum and make sure that Britain stays inside the EU? So people may make their minds up on all kinds of reasons and the campaign will feature all kinds of issues yeah. but in the end that's the outcome will be one of those two things so it will be a brexit election yeah i mean so the stakes are undeniably quite um quite high i mean what do you what do we make of the daily mail's idea that this election will be the battle for workington man i mean is this all about the older white male voters in leave backing northern towns is that the real i guess the battleground um where this election campaign is likely to be fought i mean this this thing about working to man was made me despair that after everything that's happened in the last three years to upset our politics and to make people think oh you know we need a new way of doing politics to yeah. go back to this thing about you know, mondeo <laughs> man and well, it is a new way. It's not a Monday man now. It's working to. It's the if same. You've ever, it's the if same you've ever way. Been there. The outcome is different, but the or the slogan is different. But this, the the approach is the same. This machine politics focus on a particular kind of voter in a particular kind of swing seat. Mm. Uh, it shows you that the political parties are still, particularly the Conservatives, because this is their line. Right, they're still thinking this machine way of just. If we just capture enough swing, you know, marginal seats away. I mean, in the end, of course, that is how elections are won, especially in a first-past-the-post system like ours. But it is depressing that that's the horizon. It's this, you know, middle-aged white guy who's, you know, been a bit upset by austerity but is quite culturally conservative, and that's, that's the people that we want to appeal to. There's a lot of people in this country who are not like that, um, more than 50% of the country, in fact. And you would hope that the Conservatives might have a slightly more ambitious approach, but you know, actually not. Well, it's definitely um, it's a like, classic marketing approach. Um, identify your target market, give them a, an, an, a narrative and a background and maybe even a, a name and then work out what they, what they want and what they need and, and uh, target them. But yeah, I mean, and yeah. The, and, and, the, and Radio 4, the Today programme, did an interview with an actual Workington man uh, who was, you know, he'd, he'd been a traditional Labour voter and mm. then he'd gone to UKIP and this time he was maybe thinking of voting for the Tories. Um, now, I suppose if we look away from that kind of marketing machine approach to politics, I suppose what it's capturing is um, the Tories' hopes, yes, in the short run, of capturing marginals that are currently held by Labour yep. um, and and using Brexit as the wedge issue to win those people over to the Conservative Party and say, you know, you've been betrayed by Labour for ages, now is the time to come over to the Tories, and that's the way that you win those marginal seats over. But I suppose the bigger structural picture, which is to, to kind of peel back from that kind of dull um, machine politics, political science approach, is to say, 
there's been this structural shift in um, British politics where the Labour Party can no longer take the working classes for granted. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and that's what that is symbolising, I think. Wokington Man symbolises that. Mm. So I'm, I'm often um, close to saying Wokingham Man because this is actually the constituency that, that I'm from, John, John Redwood, long-time MP there. But no, I think this is a really important question um, as to whether this is likely to be a class realignment election, whether this is going to be... Scholars will look back in you know, 25 years and say this was decisively the point at which the Tories became a working class party and Labour, Labour became a middle class party or Labour became a party of public sector workers. Um, so, I mean, I guess the question is how... Should we overstate this or is this just part of a of a change that's been, uh, I guess, rumbling on since mm. 2016. It's a long-term shift, and it goes back well before 2016, actually. So, you know, you have to remember that the big pitch of the Conservatives in the 1980s under Margaret Thatcher was to the aspirational working classes, mm. uh, and that became the key battleground between the Conservatives and New Labour. So this kind of broad shift, you know, bribing the working classes with buying their own council houses and that kind of thing. That has been going on for a long time. And of course, the Conservatives have always been able to count on some working class support, even in the heyday of two-party politics in a very class-stratified country. Mm. So this is a long-term shift that's been going on for a long time. Um, But I think... So there'll be no decisive point, and I don't think this will be the decisive point. And even if... The, Labour, the Conservatives do manage to get, you know, 50% of C2 DEs, as they're now classified mm. as, however you like that very so problematic another, way of thinking about Another marketing... Class. Yeah, uh, it, of, yes, it comes approach. from market research, and it's a, it's, a, it's a very problematic way of understanding social class, but it's the one that we, it's the one that we get poll data on. Yeah. If you look at that at the moment, we've got um, some polls showing that more people in the C2 DEs category are favouring the Conservatives and the Labour Party. And that, when you, you reach that threshold, although it's been going for a long time, it is shocking. Mm. And it is it symbolises the the degradation of the Labour Party and the way that it's become disconnected from its working class base. But I think it's a, it's a long process by which Labour Party voters have deserted the Labour Party. Many have just stopped voting. You know, they lost millions of votes under yeah. New Labour, even as the working class expanded. Um, and a lot of them just disengaged from politics. Others of them went to UKIP, and some of them have gone through UKIP to the Conservatives and mm. through even Brexit Party yeah. to the Conservatives. So those kind of right-wing populist parties have almost become a gateway for former Labour supporters or what we would have in the past have called natural Labour voters yeah. to eventually come round and vote for the Conservative Party. And I think there the polls, insofar as they're reliable, which not very, do seem to show that that is happening. But that's a, a long-term structural shift. Yeah, I think m- moving on to discuss where Labour are, their manifesto, and mm. who they're trying to appeal to and who they're likely to appeal to, we should um, we should definitely get onto that. I guess there are a lot of questions as well about the health, um, the reality, and even <clears throat> the future of ideas like Labour Heartland and and the political landscape that we've been probably familiar with for the past couple of decades Mm. um but maybe before moving on to talk about the parties i guess there's a question of how how did we how did we get here so perhaps particularly for international uh listeners they might think well there was an election there was a referendum in 2016 then there was a general election in 2017 wasn't this a fairly sensible approach in a in a sense of of having a mandate for leaving the EU and the number of parties articulating what this could look like and surely that means that that gets carried through you don't need an election in um, 2019 so i guess this is this is maybe the question to discuss now and obviously to avoid points like there's just too much politics we don't want to be anti <laughs> we don't want to be anti politics um, but yeah how did we get to the situation that we're having a uh, an election in December 2019. You know, it's very cold outside, and some people have even expressed the worry that this might mean that people will will not vote because it may be uh, too cold mm. to to walk to the polling station. And um, whether you give that any credence or not, how did we 
get to this this uh, this situation. No, it's the third general election in four years, and that's a lot. It's not very usual in the UK context, but the EU referendum in 2016 was genuinely very um, explosive and very disruptive to our um, political scene because all of the establishment parties lined up with Remain and the wrong side won. Mm. Uh, wrong side in scare quotes. Um, yeah, you, you should might, say that, otherwise listeners will be quite I mean, surprised. They might have got it from my tone of voice, but, you yeah. know, uh, quote-unquote wrong side. Um, and that has thrown the, the, the political system into total disarray because the fundamental issue, the fundamental problem of the EU referendum and what's happened since is that the EU referendum was a democratic moment but it, it lacked a democratic movement. So mm. 52% of people voted to leave the European Union, but they were not represented in Parliament. Yeah. None of the political parties in Parliament campaigned to leave. So you had a Remain Parliament and Remain political parties. OK, they had some Leave fragments in them, but mostly they were Remain. Uh, were then entrusted to enact the EU referendum result. And they were split between... Um, groups saying uh, we shouldn't honour the referendum result at all and we should just ignore it and it was just the result of Russian bots and dark money and Cambridge Analytica and racists and xenophobes and we should just ignore it and and go back to business as usual. And buses with with, with numbers on the side of them, not just the front and the back as indicating where they're going. Those cunning cunning buses. Um, On the one hand, so you had that kind kind of hard remain side yeah and then on the other hand you you have people who reluctantly are willing to implement some form of brexit merely to survive politically and that's where the conservatives were under (laughs) Theresa may so the recognition that well you know in the end we can't really avoid this and actually most of our own voters voted against our line right most tory voters voted to leave so for political survival we have to do something we can't ignore this entirely but we will produce, you know, it's a damage limitation exercise. I don't really want yeah. to do it, but we have to do it. But how can we do it in a way that disrupts things as little as possible? That leads you to Theresa May's Brexit in name only deal, um, which lots of people look at and think, well, why do you even bother? Um, because this ties us so closely to the European Union, we might as well just stay in, mm. which led to the deal not going through Parliament. A crisis in the Conservative Party... And then the European elections, um, the explosive rise of the Brexit party as people saw that, that their democratic vote was being totally sold out, yeah. um, which then terrorised the Conservative Party into finally getting their act together and negotiating a Brexit deal that actually looks like what people voted for in the first place. Mm. But because Theresa May called an election in 2017, no majority to actually push that deal through. Um, so... You're left with a total deadlock in Parliament where one side, for reasons of its own electoral survival, not because it believes particularly in Brexit or because it has a vision for the country, mm. will is willing to implement Brexit versus everybody else that isn't willing to implement Brexit and has various ways of getting out of it. Um, and that's the deadlock. And there was no way out of that deadlock apart from postponing Brexit and having a general election. So... That's, where That's how we got here, in my view. Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, <clears throat> I think one of the things that this whole protracted process um, really shows is that there is a, a deep um, disconnect between uh, the people um, and our representative institutions. And this, this crisis of British electoral politics, um, the void that the political scientist Peter Mayer talked about i mean this is which is fueled really from i guess the post-war period and accelerating from the 70s onwards in which party membership rates voting rates associational institutions like church and trade union membership rates these all decline it means that there is um, a certain free-floating nature um, amongst our parliamentarians they have their quote-unquote enlightened judgment of what's what's going on of what's in 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 their own in the interests not just of their party but of of the nation or of of people in general and i guess this leads to 
ideas like accountability not really having a material force there's no there's no um that link maybe is is really stretched and, and maybe even broken and i think this is an important point um an important aspect in in how we got here is that this has been a long time coming mm. i think the the crisis of brexit has not effectuated but but has revealed mm. um and that i think it, it it, it requires a very deep reckoning with with where British politics is mm, at mm. at the moment. So yeah. I guess I mean you're you're nodding along. Yeah, I think Brexit exposed a crisis of representation in British politics. Mm. It didn't create the crisis. Lots of sort of liberal centrists and Remainers like to think that oh, if we you know, if only David Cameron had not called the the EU referendum, everything would be fine. It wouldn't be fine. Mm. There'd be a profound malaise at the heart of British politics, which actually was already expressing itself in the political system because um, the Conservatives had only managed to scrape into power with a coalition in 2010. Mm. And they'd won a small majority in 2015 on the basis of calling the EU referendum. Um, And of course, they were also forced to call... um, referendum on the voting system and also on Scottish independence, which they very... Uh, you know, at one point in time, it looked like they were going to going to lose. All these fundamental constitutional questions were bubbling to the surface, and we were having to resort to plebiscitary means to settle these questions, which is highly unusual in the mm. British political system. We don't have a tradition of direct democracy and of referendum. We we rely on representation, but clearly the political system was not capable of resolving these problems through the representative representative system, which shows you that the, the, the political system of representation through MPs was in a, an advanced state of decay yeah. already. Yeah. Um, and the EU referendum calling it, uh, clearly by somebody who didn't really recognise what he was doing or what was actually going on, exposed this crisis, it laid bare this crisis, that enough people thought that you know, the most important structuring fact of our constitution, of our political and economic life, which is EU membership and the neoliberal constitution of um, EU membership, was worth uh, throwing away, that it was worth breaking from that status quo, despite yeah. all the predictions of catastrophe. Yeah. Um, that was how bad the situation had got, that many people just thought, you know, it, it, it can't get any worse. Yeah. So we're going to gamble with this. And we're still... <laughs> we still haven't really seen how that, that gamble... Um, not in the not in the terms of <clears throat> what's going to happen if when we leave, but we haven't even seen the enact um, that decision being enacted. No, and it's precisely because that fifty two percent did not have any representation. Yeah, you know, and, and our political system rests on representation that X number of people vote for party X, and they their views are therefore represented in the parliamentary system. First past the post clearly was not doing that because the rise of UKIP, you know, they were winning in, in the EU uh, elections. They were winning more than a fifth of the vote. They were the biggest political party. They had no representation in the British Parliament. Yeah. That was already a sign that there was this unmet need, this unmet demand in society that wasn't representing itself in the political system. And that 52%, they also had no direct representation. So that's been the fundamental problem is the mismatch between the decision that people took in 2016 and their representatives in the political system. And that still has not been resolved. Yeah. The Tory party, although they've been willing to say, okay, we've got to implement the result, are still doing it in a way that, well, to begin with, at least was extremely half-hearted. Even now, they're not really representing the demand for fundamental, Mm. thoroughgoing change that I think most people voted for in 2016. It's still a very conservative way to implement the brexit result and everybody else is saying actually we don't want to implement it at all or let's just literally talk about anything else yeah. in, in the world but before moving on i guess to, to look at the um at the the parties and where they where they're standing in this election i guess just maybe something to add here on the role of the eu in this in creating and sustaining this and actually is exacerbating this this gap between people and representatives so i mean <clears throat> some people theorize eu membership as a process of state transformation so where you go from being a nation state 
to being a member state. And I think it's just... Most famously the full Brexit's Chris Bickerton. Uh, yes, yes, uh, indeed. And there's um, many articles on the full Brexit website who um, which explicate this far more eloquently than I'm, I'm just about to. And don't worry, I wasn't going to take ownership of that point like it was No, it's like some it people, you know, there's a, there's a very, there's a very <laughs> leading person who is... Who has theorised the EU in this way? Well, hopefully he'll be on a, on a future, oh, yeah, future one of these um, to stop his ideas being um, being appropriated. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, just to say that I think it's important to to to, to frame EU membership to, to frame the EU not as this um, the super state of the Eurosceptic right and not as a neutral institution that some people on the left seem to theorise it as, but to understand it precisely in this process of domestic. Mm politics and that's where the true meaning of eu membership um comes from and that's where the the, the meaning of uh, leaving the eu if we, if we get around to it will will also be found um so yeah i think just in terms of how we how we got to this this point it is eu membership is one of these one of the, the key, if not the key contributing factor to this yeah because this what mayor crisis. mayor and then bickerton were arguing was that the EU isn't a superstate that bosses the member states around. It is a process of political transformation. And the retreat of the political class into the European Union is part of its retreat from the masses. Mm. So this void that had opened up between the people and the political elite, which which came, he argued, Mayer argued, out of mutual um, retreat from one another. Yeah. And, the, and the political elite retreated first into the state... And then also into the European Union, so they beca- they they establish closer and more intimate ties with other political elites across the European Union, and they drew their inspiration and their policy mm-hmm. platforms and their their ways of thinking from those relationships, which are institutionalised in the European Union, rather than from the social bases that they historically were supposed to represent. Mm. Um, and so the European Union is not the cause of this disengagement. I think Mayor. Um, not entirely explicit, but he does trace the disengagement happening from after the 1980s. So with the death of the left-right distinction, the death yeah. of alternatives to capitalism, of you know systemic uh, alternatives to one another, and the rise of you know third-wave politics and the, the collapse of real political contestation. Um, the EU is an outgrowth of that, but it certainly entrenches it. Yeah. Because it encourages political elites not to engage in the task of democratic renewal by engaging with their electorate again, yeah. but more to engage with their fellow bureaucrats or judges or political elites through European institutions. Yeah. So it becomes a blockage to the democratic renewal. And of course, in the end, a neoliberal constitution that rules certain policies out and therefore cements this new third way of doing politics. Mm. And then in some ways, the proof is in the pudding that... Um, political elites um, reduced capacity for uh, p- domestic political problem solving and mm. reduced accountability to domestic voters leads to something like Brexit being a, a seemingly insuperable problem. Yeah, because you have absolute horror on the Remain side that how could you tear us away from these networks that give us sustenance and inspiration and everything mm. good flows from them? Because nothing good could possibly throw from domestic politics and these horrible people that we're supposed to actually represent. So that's on the Remain side. And then even on the on the Leave side, their capacity to think, to imagine a future for Britain outside of the European Union is highly attenuated. Mm. So maybe to move on to the um, pitches that the, the, the parties are making to these horrible people who have to uh, end up voting for them. Maybe to have a look at, I guess, a little bit of the the manifestos of the main the main parties, and I think we'll probably concentrate on on uh, Labour's, um, and we can uh, in future discussions perhaps look at some of the other parties mm. in a little bit more um, detail. So Lee, you um, you actually read the Labour manifesto. I you did. you um, got your highlighter out and. <laughs> Uh, um, marked passages of interest and things that might or might not be illegal in the EU. Um, but yeah, so maybe to start with uh, start with Labour then. So what is the um, the most striking thing do you think about the Labour manifesto? Corbyn, in his foreword to the manifesto, says that you know, some people say this is the Brexit election. Mm. But then he says, but it's also 
Um, it's also the climate change election. It's also the NHS election, the investment election, the living standards election, the education election, the poverty election. Da -da 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 -da. Above all, it's the change election. So there's a clear strategy here, which is to say, uh, this is not just about Brexit, it's about all these other things. And in fact, can we actually please talk about all these other things and not Brexit? Mm. And that is reflected in the structure of the manifesto because Brexit is left to almost last. Um, the bit at the end is about foreign policy, uh, defence and security, and, and Brexit is sort of tagged in, mm. uh, tacked on sort of just before that, in the bit that you know nobody really cares about because it's foreign policy almost. Um Instead, it opens the opening section of the manifesto, and the, and the, really the foundation, you know, the, the real cornerstone of this manifesto is a green industrial revolution, and the, that section opens with this election is about the crisis of living standards and the climate and environmental emergency. Mm. Uh, no other part of the manifesto says this election is about this. So it start it goes from that sort of oh yes Brexit and and, 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 to immediately reframing and say, actually, the election's not about that. It's about living standards in the climate. Um, and no other part of the manifesto shares that status that the election is also about this. Yeah. So it's the change, from Labour's point of view, it's the change election. It's not the change UK election. <laughs> Thank um, God. <laughs> but no, and you made a really, I think, a, a really astute observation on, I guess, the role that the Green Industrial Revolution is um, is playing before we started recording um and yeah maybe not to to appropriate this this point but just to to frame it i think the this is the the, the starting point and the justification for a lot of the um radical policies that labor is is uh, putting forward yeah that's right i mean the there's a phrase in the manifesto that says the climate and environmental emergency is a chance to unite the country to face this common challenge by mobilizing all of our national resources so what they're saying is the climate emergency is the sort of external deus ex machina that can bring the country together, create a common purpose and um, create a justification for the amount of investment that will be required to reframe mm. the economy. Um, that it's not just a choice, a kind of, well, socialism versus conservatism, but actually we have to do it. Mm. Um, and they, they you know want to change national accounting measures to... Uh, incorporate the costs of not taking action mm. so that it would become almost impossible through budgeting uh, mechanisms that this was that this would be ruled out um so in you know they they brexit is a very divisive issue that that carves people into these two camps and what they're trying to say is we'll park that we we'll put it literally at the end of the manifesto and say look we'll just get it sorted in six months and, and that'll be that and forget about that for now the thing is the climate emergency and that's what we're going we're going to tackle it and through all this investment in the economy yeah. we're going to create this new investment uh, new industries new jobs and so we're going to kill two birds with one stone but cr credit where credit's due it's not a i mean <clears throat> there could be another way to respond to this um, climate emergency through an extremely um, austere mm. um, deep green reduce living standards, reduce consumption, um, an approach which, which Labour haven't taken. Instead, they've, as, as you're saying, they've, they've said that, that it it's, um, necessitates investment and, and, and forward movement. Yeah, and um, I think that's really important um, yeah. because there is certainly uh, the, the deep green view of the climate crisis, which means, you know, degrowth, uh, you know, go back to living in mud huts, that kind of you know Malthusian attitude um, and you know, frankly that will never command majority support and it's deeply um, regressive reactionary uh, nobody on nobody on the left should have anything to do with that kind of, mm. of perspective and Labour says you know we will lead the world in fighting climate change with a plan to drive up living standards by transforming our economy to one low in carbon rich in good jobs radically fairer and more democratic now so on one hand i think it's great you know to tackle the climate crisis there clearly is a need for massive um, state leadership to lead us to a new post-carbon economy that's obvious 
And the only way you can gain democratic legitimacy for that is to say that this will not drive down living standards, it will drive it up. Yeah. And it will lead to, for example, you know, lower energy prices. One of the things that they want is lower energy prices, not higher ones. Mm. This flies in the face of a lot of green thinking. That's good. But um, it's really interesting that essentially climate rebellion, extinction rebellion rather, uh, has provided the inspiration for Labour parties. This will be our foundation. This is the way that we can sort of force everybody into this new future because um, we've got to do it you know otherwise we're all going to die so uh, we have to make this investment and it's all about survival and let's just do it um, it's remarkable because that argument that you know we're in a climate emergency we've got to pass a, an emergency climate bill which they also promise this is a very new arrival on the British political stage really well I think it is and it isn't I mean, in that particular form, it is. But I, the reason why I I react negatively towards that is it does feel like it's Tina. It's like there is no alternative. We have to do it. Mm. We we it's an emergency. The rules of having to persuade people and establish a majoritarian position are not. It's not required to go through that democratic route because this is more important. This is above politics. This is something that unites us all. And it's just too it's just too easy. It, it doesn't really work like that. It's much more difficult to mm. get a majority of people behind um, a radical platform which empowers them and which which actually says you know you don't have to do this otherwise you're going to die. But this is a better vision of society, mm. not um, the only alternative to being to being wiped out. And I mean that might well be quite a harsh reading, but I think it's in some ways symptomatic of the exactly what you said. Brexit is at the end. There's that kind of reluctance to touch this kind of messy politics and this like mm. divisiveness. Oh, not really sure about that. Mm. Um, and so it is a strange form of political quote unquote leadership if if there's no um, embracing of of this key issue and this I guess um, desire to reckon with this this real this real problem. There's a constant reframing, and you know Corbyn has always said that the real division in our society is not leave and remain. It's the it's the the haves and the have nots, or the many and the few, mm. um, which is a kind of populist reframing. Um, and you know, on one hand, I am sympathetic to it to a certain extent because, of course, the real objective division in our society is a class division, mm. and it it is very heartening on one level to see a Labour Party manifesto that is so openly materialist and so openly class-based that this is all about transforming the, the economic basis of the economy. There's a lot of ideological stuff in there as well, but the, the, what's front-loaded is you know investment, economic transformation, jobs, mm. procurement policies, you know, billion, hundreds of billions of pounds in all these investment funds. And it's, it's good to see that level of ambition and the materialism of it. The politics of it, I think, like you say, is problematic because there is a real division in society at the moment, which is people feel very entrenched around leave and remain. Mm. And that is not to be sniffed at or bypassed. And I don't think that there's any evidence that those attachments have dissipated simply on the basis of Corbyn saying, oh, it's not the real division. Well, actually, at this moment in time, it is the real division. And you have to do quite a lot of political work yeah. to 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 address that. You actually have to address it one way or another. Either one side wins or one side loses. That's the nature of a binary contest. And then you have to do a lot of work to build people's view that, you know, it's the many versus the few. And that's the work that's being done in this manifesto ideologically is to say, you know, we're all going to benefit from this green transformation. Not even the energy unions, you know, the yeah. oil workers, they're all going to be fine. We're going to look yeah. after them. It'll be a just transition. Um, the only people that are going to lose out is a few greedy corporations at the top who've been polluting and, mm. and all that kind of stuff. So that many few distinction runs all the way through. But I think if you go back to the leaders debate, which was, which was dreadful and, you know, offensive to democracy in all kinds of ways, but... It was striking that when Corbyn talked about climate change, people in the audience scoffed. Hmm. They scoffed and they laughed. And, you know, Paul Mason came out immediately on uh, Twitter and said, oh, it's, they're racists. They're Tory racists because somehow he linked it to the fact that 
I don't know, people in developing countries are suffering the most, and that's what they were scoffing at. I think this that wasn't the reasoning on, at all. It was more that when ordinary working class people hear about climate change, it's often in connection with higher green taxes yeah. or people coming around and installing smart meters in their home and charging them more for their petrol. And the stuff that, he, that initially drove the Gilets Jaunes rebellion in, in France, mm. right, is when the people hear climate change, they, they look around for a state official reaching into their pockets. And so that, that's what they've come to associate it with. Now, that's yeah. very unfortunate, but it shows you the amount of political work that has to be done to win people round to this idea that a green industrial revolution is a way of combining um, safeguarding the environment that human existence depends on with radical transformation in economic yeah. and social relations. And I, that work has not been done because it ha- they haven't been on the ground preaching this. This connection, I think, is is quite new. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, that it fills, it fills a void and it's a relatively new insertion. And so for that reason... When people hear about climate, hear climate change, and I'm, you know, I can only really speak for myself, but I'm, I'm always waiting for the moral judgment. What have I, you know, what have I done wrong, and what am I now? Um, what is it now necessary for me to do to, to cognitively off, offset all of this, these things which um, I've I've been been doing? I guess one thing, just maybe to to, to touch on before, you know, putting our, our next one line and, and saying what we think might happen in terms of predictions, is the the response already to the Labour manifesto, which has been um, ex- extremely reactionary, um, the framing of the of the increased tax burden on on a very small proportion, five percent of of people, has led all all manner of um, business leaders and um, the the great and the good of society, so called, to say no, this is impossible. The tax burden will fall on on hard-working ordinary families or families of people or however they phrase it mm. um but it's quite striking how the this narrative around this is a return to the 70s even this kind of mild social democracy mm. is people are um uh, really <laughs> staggered that somebody could have the audacity to to even put forward these ideas um i guess you know what what does this mean for 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 those of us who might want to go beyond <laughs> a lot <labor>? further? Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, it's one of the things that's really striking is that the manifesto gets less ambitious as you go through it. Mm. So it starts with all this stuff about the green industrial revolution and massive amounts of you know, investment, um, this fund, that fund, um, these factories, and this kind of thing. And then as we go into public services it gets less and less ambitious. And, and broadly speaking, you would say that the ambition is to restore public spending to a level that it was at in 2010. Mm. That's usually, if you go through, that's the kind of general uh, tone. That's the mm. general target. In some cases, even less. So Let's get back f- to the golden years of 2010. Well, yeah, when everything, 2012, when everything was great. Mm. Um, you know, everything was so great in 2010. It's, it's not that radical. It's not saying, you know, let's uh, transform... Uh, the National Health Service so that it does this, this, this and this. It's actually, you know, an increase of 4.3% year on year. Mm. And in that, a commitment to year on year real terms pay increases for the staff to sort of backfill the impact of um, public sector pay freezes over the last 10 years. Well, most of that 4.3% is going to be eaten up in extra pay. Mm. There isn't any ambition to restructure the service or really do anything else with it. Not explicitly, no, no detail on that. And when it comes to the fire service, you know, they say there's been 15,000 cuts in firefighters and we're going to, we're going to hire an additional 5,000. So they're not even promising to reverse Tory cuts in all areas. And you think, you read it and you think, well, that's not going to be enough, actually, mm. especially when it comes to healthcare. Um, you're talking about expanding free dental. You've got an aging population. Four point three percent is not actually going to be yeah. enough to achieve transformatory change in the way the NHS is providing. There's no thought given to a different model of service delivery. So I think this this brings us on to maybe the last question um, on Labour's manifesto, which is what might, if anything, be be illegal um, in the EU. Um, of, of the policies contained in the manifesto but just to frame this in terms of brexit's um labor's brexit policy 
So they plan to, to tear up Johnson's deal and to negotiate a new deal, which includes, among other things, customs union. And then <clears throat> uh, once they've sort of established Close alignment this, to the single market. Yeah, exactly. Once they've established this um, sort of Brexit in name only, then to have, a, of course, a, a conference to decide the position um, of the party and which one of the Brexit name only and Remain will um, will be campaigned for. But of course, it seems that many of the front bench of the Labour Party and many of its uh, 2019 election materials seem very strongly to suggest um, vote Labour, get get Remain. So, yeah, I guess in, in this context of probably... Um, staying closely aligned or, or within the EU, what problems might this present for the policies of in Labour's manifesto? Yeah, I mean, the Brexit is really the sort of spectre that haunts this manifesto. It occasionally sort of pops up and says boo. Um, there are bits in it where it says, well, if people, you know, choose to, to choose to remain, then we won't be able to do this. Or if they choose to leave, then we'll have to negotiate that. Um, but that's quite rare and some some of the bigger more sort of bold radical policies you have to think you know can you really do this inside the european union and it's hard to say you know i'm not a legal expert um and legal experts disagree on you know the way that they evaluated the 2017 manifesto which was much more um radical than what had gone before and this is even more radical then some people said it would fall foul of Mm. Um, EU rules and some people said no it wouldn't I mean the very least one could say is that there are many elements of this manifesto that could potentially be open to legal challenge in the mm. European courts that could tie up the government for many years or or make it too costly as a result of those judgments to pursue some of these um, big ticket items um, so just to kind of highlight a few there's obviously a huge amount of state-led investment in this green industrial revolution um, that could well fall foul of state aid rules um, there's a big reliance on using public procurement to make sure that all this investment in climate adaptation does not simply result in leakage i.e you know we just import lots of solar panels from china and wind mm. turbines from germany mm. the idea is that it creates supply chains jobs manufacturing good jobs in the uk now, to do that, you have to essentially block those imports and build up the industrial supply chains that currently don't exist, thanks to years and years of, of industrial decline. It's not immediately obvious how you would do that and how you would get those industries in place, and you don't control your trade policy. Um, it's not obvious that within the EU you could use public procurement to do those things. So there's many parts of the manifesto that say we'll use public procurement to sort of shut out, shut down this kind of behaviour and encourage that mm. kind of behaviour, it's not immediately obvious that will be possible because procurement rules favour competition. Um, the various bits of nationalisation, nationalising um, some of the utilities, that would probably be subject to challenge in the European courts. Um, the railways, interestingly, on the railways, they don't say we will nationalise the railways. Um, they say that we will take the railways back into public ownership by pursuing different options, including um, franchise expiry, which suggests that they know that if they tried for full-on um, renationalisation, that would be problematic within the European Union. So instead, they're going to wait and you know not offer these franchises again when they come up for renewal, which yeah. is a not renationalisation, b incredibly slow. Um, They've got a very ambitious uh, set of proposals on workers' rights, which I think are all um, great. <laughs> it is it is the biggest step change in workers' rights uh, that we would have seen in this country for a long, long time. Um, but it flies in the face of all the rhetoric we've had from Labour about the EU need to stay in the EU to protect workers' rights. Mm. On the other hand, they're, they're saying we're going to legislate for all these great workers' rights. Um, well, Maybe uh, didn't need the EU in the first We don't place. actually need it. Maybe it's just about electing a, a government that's on the side of workers. But how those new rights would fare against EU regulations when tested in the European court um, is open to question. Because yeah. as Mary Davis points out on the full Brexit website, 
all of the European Court's judgments in recent years have gone against organised labour and in favour of big companies. And then the final thing that, that jumped out at me, and again, I'm not a legal expert, but it jumped out at me, was this idea that Labour Party would maintain um, current agricultural subsidies but would rework them to use them um, for climate adaptation and sustainable food production, food security, and that they would amend you know, trade and so on to, around food security. Um, and I'm not sure that the common agricultural policy would allow them to do that. I honestly don't know. It's an open question. And there's many bits and bobs about trade. You know, we're not going to allow that for trade and we're going to prioritise that in trade. You think, but the EU controls trade policy hmm. for all member states. There's not a recognition. In other words, all the way through this manifesto, it's a manifesto written as if we're not in the European Union anymore. Hmm. Um, Brexit is, is a footnote at the end. Let's not talk about that. It's all going to get sorted. Don't worry. Um, and all the policies, as if there's no real constraints, just one or two parts where they recognise there is a constraint, for example, particularly around fishing quotas. They say, you know, if we stay, well, tough, you know, or if we stay in the EU, well, we'll have to have freedom of movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so some recognition that there's a constraint, but by and large, no real recognition that there are these self-imposed restraints through EU membership that would create problems. And so then it makes you think, you know, have they really thought this through? Um, is it really remain proof, as they claim? Or is it the fact that, is it the truth that all this radical stuff that is problematic inside the EU will probably get put on the back burner, marginalised, delayed, hmm. uh, you know, Tied clogged up. up in the courts? Yep. And what we'll really get in practice is, is what's left, which is a relatively unambitious public spending program of taking us back to where we were at before 10 years of austerity, coupled with the, the, the more sort of woke ideological agenda that you find in, in other parts of the manifesto. So <clears throat> that's, that's the Labour manifesto, and possibly we could discuss some of the other parties' manifestos in, in uh, future episodes. Um, but yeah, maybe as a final point, what, um, of course, predictions are a way to make yourself look uh, foolish in the very near future. Um, or have to eat your book live yes. on television, as, as, as the full Brexit co-founder, Matt Goodwin, found <laughs> to his disadvantage. Well, I mean, maybe this is a, a new way of, of absorbing knowledge. Um <laughs> Better than reading. Um, well, that's why I always say about my books, they're very absorbent. Yeah, tasty uh, stuff. But yeah, so what? What um, are you prepared to, to put your head above the parapet and say what you think is going to happen? Well, are on... you? What, what's your prediction? Well, I mean, that's a difficult question. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I think the my instinct is, is and this is um, polls notwithstanding, and... Also, notwithstanding the unreliability of the polls, um, I think that the the Tories are going to be um, establishing a government on the thirteenth of December. I think there's we're going to see a Tory majority, and this is essentially because they are dimly aware, um, at least, um, of their need to 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 remain accountable. And some of the things that Johnson has said. Um, around defending democracy um i think if it falls to the tories to have to do this then this will be a sufficient strategy to win a majority i know that in that some people matthew goodwin and john curtis um don't think that this is 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 a is a um a, a necessary i don't think it's a bolt-on they think that other things can happen mm. so i mean you you don't you I mean you you can take the the other way out and say here are the scenarios that we see mm. happening um, but yeah I mean in terms of the outcomes what 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 and consequences where are you sitting yeah Matt Matt and um, and John Curtis say basically it's it's two to one odds that the Tories will get a majority not not a thumping majority but sizable enough uh, and therefore you get um, therefore you get Brexit. Hmm. And but they say, and I think this is right, that they wouldn't be surprised by a hung parliament. And I think that's the 
that's the best that the Labour Party is going to achieve. They're not going to be able to, to form a government, I think, mm-hmm. unless something really drastic and transformatory happens in the next few weeks, which we can't foresee at this point in time. But mm-hmm. they are narrowing the gap with the Tories. They're gradually squeezing the Lib Dems in the way that the Tories are, are squeezing the Brexit Party. Um, but and maybe this manifesto will break through. Maybe. I don't know. But um, I think the best that Labour Party can currently hope for is a minority government in in a hung parliament, um, mm. and th- those are the two basic likely scenarios. Take us back to where we started, and you know, one the to- a Tory majority of any stripe leads to um, Brexit being enacted on Boris Johnson's terms, and a minority government means inevitably um, a second referendum on decidedly unfavourable terms that are basically stacked in favour of Remain. Hmm. I think that's a nice a nice place maybe to to leave it. Quite a cl- clear set of uh, scenarios there. So now if something different happens, we can uh, come back to this. And, and I would maybe just say one last thing by closing, okay. which is to say I think many people who follow the full Brexit and are interested in what we do must feel a, a terrible dilemma and I think all left leavers must feel a terrible dilemma because on the one hand you've got this Labour Party manifesto which is the most radical since the 1980s in terms of really trying to transform um, the economy and improve workers rights and so on and many of the things in that manifesto many people on the left would dearly love to see mm. um, but it's underpinned by this um, utter disrespect for the binding, the politically binding quality of the 2016 um, manifesto, and so I know that there are there are many people, some of them posting on the on the blog, saying, you know, basically I'm going to have to vote Conservative because it's the only way to ensure that um, that democracy is upheld mm. and my vote counts, and that I think must be a terrible wrench for for a lot of people that. You know, you've got on the one hand all these kind of great policy offers that you might like, but on the other hand, it's not underpinned by a commitment to democracy. Um, and you know, Tony Benn, interestingly, was always very clear on this point that you have to have democracy first. It's not the socialist policies that come first; it's the democracy. If you can't inter- if you can't uphold democracy and make people feel their own power and that their vote can genuinely transform society, you can't build a, a, a socialist society. So you can't do one without the other. And I think fundamentally that's the hole that Labour Party finds itself in. And it is, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tragedy mm. of historic proportions. So on that um, <clears throat> optimistic <laughs> note, um, yeah, just to say thanks. Thanks very much, Lee. And, and thanks to you. And uh, thanks for listening. Hopefully catch you on the next one. Bye.